Hello, welcome back. It's Shiraz Yousaf, uh, video games industry people here. Today I'm talking to Oscar Clark, a man of great wisdom and experience in the video games industry. In fact, on his Facebook page, he describes himself as a man with too many opinions and game-related t-shirts, which people interpret as wisdom because he is old. So I think that is a nice summary of oneself. But he's a very interesting guy, he's got lots of stories, lots of um, insights, so have a good listen. Oh, and also I'm uh, the podcast is in conjunction with GameDevHeroes.co. I nearly forgot it, but I'm very professional, so I didn't. Okay, over to the podcast. I'm here with Oscar Clark. Oscar is a, a very old school, like, you're around... Very old. Matt, Matt. <laughs> Matt's full, Matt's full error, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I first got into games at um, age, I was 1998. Wow. Um, okay. There was I was running an online gaming service in 1998, which you can hardly imagine that. An online dial-up modems. Yeah. So we were doing Quake and Counter Strike and various other things like this, even like poker and chess and yeah. Very, I actually hired um, Gary Kasparov to launch a chess surface back in the day, okay. hard to believe. Um, yeah, so I was working for British Telecom, Okay. obviously the giants of the gaming industry, oh wait, no they're not, um, <laughs> but no, they were, they had the second online gaming service in the world Yeah. called Wireplay, it'd okay. been running for a couple of years, uh, when I joined in 98, I ended up running the thing. Um, it ended up getting sold off in the dot-com bust. Yeah. I say that because it went bust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I left before it would collapse. But, uh, um, yeah, I kind of made a career of doing things far too early. Okay. All sorts of really interesting online stuff. Way, way too early. Ah, I see, to capitalise on it properly. Yeah, yeah. Ah. But, you know, I get to do, you know, like, for <coughs> example, so I worked on this online gaming stuff, and uh, my favourite story about that is that I... I saved Counter-Strike, which is um, my favourite kind of online shooter game. It's amazing. It's still huge now. It's a bit of a lie, but basically they ran out of money. We bought them some new PCs, therefore, of course, I saved Counter-Strike. The reality is they then got bought by Valve a few months later. So that's really what saved them. But it's it's kind of a fun sort of thing to think that the really, really early days where people were learning what an online game was going to be about, mm. and we got to be there. Yeah, right at the beginning. Yeah. And then I did the same thing with mobile games. So um, I joined 3, the mobile operator, um, which you probably didn't realise that 3 was the most successful mobile operator in terms of games revenue. Okay. In 2006, it was like um, 68% of the UK downloads, about 48% of the UK revenue. Yeah, I had had a 3 phone at the time, actually. Yeah. Which one? Which brick? It was a brick. <laughs> it was. Um, I think it might have been a flip. Was it a flip, flip one? Yeah. Because yeah, there, there was a there was an LG flip thing which was awful. Twenty seven k limits. So basically, you just about get asteroids on it. Right. And of course, me being me, thought I don't know. Let's make in app purchase. Let's have a let's buy the game. That takes up six k. So basically, we made it impossible for anyone to put any games on the phone because we wanted to sell them by renting games. Right. Yeah, but it, we learned so much from doing that. I mean, the stuff that we see people doing every day now, I did twenty years ago. Right, and so it's really interesting. 
I've got to find out how that stuff worked long before anyone else. So are you, are you currently doing stuff like that now? Well, I do a whole bunch <coughs> of things. So, um, like I say, I had the online gaming thing in 98. 2002, I joined 3, and we launched it in 2003. Yeah. And then later I joined uh, Sony and worked on PlayStation Home. Okay. Big virtual world. Okay, yeah. I was home architect, great title. Basically yeah. meant that I was the whipping boy. Right. Dealing with all the politics between all the regions. Okay. Long stories there. Um, and I've uh, been consulting ever since. And for most of that time I've been standing on stage as an evangelist, telling people about the latest, greatest things in terms of game development. Okay. Particularly around, would you believe, things like ads. I know it sounds very boring. But we did some of the very first uh, online in-game mobile video ads. Okay. Which was like, who cares about ads? But the reason why we were doing it, because it became something that you chose to do. Therefore, it became a way of thinking about design differently. What, what do you mean you chose to do? So, you don't... The kind of ads that we were doing... <clears throat> well, the reason why I didn't get completely, you know, start staring mad at having to promote them was because when you play a game, you may you know, run out of time or run out of lives or something like that. You can choose to watch a video. Okay. That gives you the extra time, the extra you know points, whatever it is you need, so you can carry on playing. It means that people can design free to play games without them being so tedious. Ah, uh, right, yeah. And actually make them good. You know, that's the kind of idea. So I do a lot of design work with games. I do. In fact, I'm actually working on one project, which is every buzzword in gaming. So it's a a blockchain-funded, right. um, AR-based location <laughs> game with a first-person shooter. <laughs> it's got it ticks all the boxes. It's every box. Every box ticked. Yeah. Um, but it's been fascinating because, again, I'm probably in way too early, but thinking about how new technology affects the way we play games. Mm. And, you know, I literally wrote the book Games as a Service for this, this principle, which is basically we can make, in fact, we have to make better games mm. because the way people are engaging with games is completely changed compared to when we went down to the local shop and bought a physical box and stuck it in our PCs. Yes. And then even, you know, if you think about it, back in sort of late 90s, we were actually able to do this stuff and download stuff online. And yet we still went out and bought physical boxes. <coughs> it takes a long time for trends to change, though. Yeah. And that people to get used to it and become mainstream. Exactly, and it's kind of you know, sitting there, I, you know, I'm always 10 years too early. Right. So everything I've done has been literally like 10 years. You You've been raking it in in 10 years from now then. Yeah, I keep saying that. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> I used to like yeah. it in the boxes, like, yeah. with the artwork and everything. Yeah, I, I, I never really kind of, it just took up space. I have just like, like, you know, attic full of but that was old the, boxes. that was the thing you liked putting all your games on display yeah all the games it was very cool now we just stick it on steam and you can look yeah at now it. you don't bother yeah. no look at the number of games you've got on steam how many hours of play yeah. you haven't done yeah you wouldn't do it now but i suppose it's too much choice that's the problem well yeah i mean back then like if you were spending 9.99 on the game you made sure it was oh, a yeah, special game it. yeah and you, uh, like, and you played it to death yeah and you know, I actually bought Fortnite, you know, I actually paid for Fortnite, uh, the kind of uh, single player mode. Yeah. And, but you think, that's not physical, that's, but I'm still spending the same kind of money mm-hmm. on, on a one-off purchase, but I can, even, I can spend even more if I want to. And you kind of go, well, is that a good or a bad experience? I'm just really enjoying it. I'm just okay. really enjoying playing, because I'm rubbish at um, one-on-one multiplayer. I can't, you know, every 14-year-old kid will dis- destroy me. Yeah. Because basically they're all 
you know, all the, all the all players, players. That's all they do with it. Yeah. I don't have the reflexes, I'm too <laughs> slow. It's a headshot dead, headshot dead, headshot dead. There's no point in playing no. most first person shooters. Not online, no way. But I can play Fortnite. Yeah. I came second once. Oh, right. In the big, you know, 100 player. I haven't played but it. Yeah. It's just really intense and fun. Okay. Um, <coughs> but the thing is, you can hide. Right. You're not going to win. Yeah. But I came second by hiding. <laughs> and okay. that gave me a game I could play. Yeah. Despite the fact that everybody else is much better than me. Okay. So, realising how people play and why they care. It's really interesting. I love thinking about game design. That's really fundamentally what drives me. So that, is that your main sort of title? Well, the title so I'm, I'm weird because I'm a consultant. I do lots of different things. Yeah, of course. And I'm, I'm one of these people that constantly finds new things to do. Okay. So one stage I'm a game developer and I'm making a game based on the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also working as a consultant on three or four different games like this Reality Clash, this blockchain based thing. Uh, I'm also working with a bunch of investors to try and help them find games to invest in. So I do all, you know, I sit there and I'll, I'll work out how to make a game financially viable. At one stage I'll work out whether a game has got any any kind of playability, what the flaws are, what the first time user experience is. I do a whole bunch of crazy stuff. The hard part is to get someone to pay for it, of course. Yeah, that's yeah. another subject. Okay. Um, but at the end of the day, what I love is why games work. Right. So, um, like I say, 20 years of experience doing this kind of service-based game has been really interesting because mm. now is that time when that's interesting. Right. All of the big games, let's say, let's say something like Clash Royale. Probably heard of Clash Royale. Clash Royale, I know. No, it's a mobile game. Okay. It's um, done by a company called Supercell. Okay. And... Uh, so is, this a, is this a driving game? No, no, it's, a, it's um, Clash Royale is a card game. It's basically I have like skeletons and um, uh, do you know I've been ages since I play it. Come all the creatures are, but you have all these different creatures and you build them up over time. And people play this as an esport. So this is like Top Trumps. Not really. Um, how do you describe Clash Royale to somebody who's not played it? It's tough. Um, it's in some ways you've got a little bit of that kind of Top Trumps thing, but you're not you're not choosing. I know I'm going to pick a car, and this is a. Lamborghini. My Lamborghini is going to be faster than your uh, Ford Mustang, maybe. Yeah. But the Ford Mustang has a bit more power or something. Something like that. Yeah. Um, that's kind of top trumps. Okay. But this is more a case of I have a bunch of cards, I choose when to play them, they're going to attack yours. Okay. Your cards. You then choose what cards you're playing to block against me. Okay. But between playing sessions, I get to unlock treasure chests which have new cards in it and if I've got enough cards I can upgrade my units. Right. So that's one of the most successful mobile games at the moment. Has been for a few years. And the company that makes it is a company called Supercell. Mm. Supercell is this massive Finnish company run by a guy called Ulka Pananen. <clears throat> and um, the reason why I find that interesting is because how do you get to the stage where we're making a game that makes billions of dollars. Right. I mean, seriously, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, that guy, Ilka, in 2002, I gave him a check for like 20 grand to be the first, you know, provide me with the first game on 3's mobile network. Oh, right. The company was called Samir at the time. Okay. And what I find fascinating is, it's the same guy, Ilka, he's just the same smart, you know, brilliant, creative person 
who's really good at getting a team behind him. And they were in the in those early days, you know, back in 2002-2003, they were starting out understanding what mobile games were like, the way you play differently with, with your phone versus you know, your PC. They went on to do Facebook social games, and they had a terrible time with that, a game called Gunshine. Look, did a really great talk about why they failed there. Mm. Then they moved to uh, mobile, to tablet in particular, mm. and Clash of Clans and Heyday became two of the top ten games for the next well ten years. Right, because they, they obviously that was their early work was their practice precisely of pulling out the good stuff, and they really thought about you know the business of making games and how do you make something that's genuinely delightful, mm. that's in, you know, engaging, but doesn't just end. You know, most games that we come across and we play uh, in the old days was, I know, let's um, take a game, I don't know. For some reason I had Max Payne in my mind because I know yeah. a lot of the people in um, Helsinki who, who were involved in that game. Um, in fact, my old boss was actually one of the characters I didn't realise until recently. He was one of the actual characters in the game. Oh. So Max Payne was a fantastic game. It was a bullet time, new innovation, great shot, great experience. But it had a story, a middle, beginning and end. Done. What do we do afterwards? I don't want to stop playing. I want to carry on playing. How do I carry on playing? Well, I can't. Well, if you have a game that's got smaller gameplay, but longer meta game, longer context yep. to play, then there's no reason to stop playing because I can keep repeating this gameplay as long as it's repeatable and extendable mm. you can keep playing and experiencing and enjoying it you don't get to the point where you stop having something to play so a lot of these games are being designed now with that in mind how do you make it so that the game doesn't have a traditional beginning middle and end instead that it has a a mechanic, a thing that we play and enjoy, Yeah, that drives the context forward, that gives us, and the context loop, gives us a sense of purpose and progression. Mm. And the metagame is everything else, the bits around the gameplay. So the metagame might be how we socially interact, you know, how do we play cooperatively, collaboratively, how do we share videos of what we do with other people in a way that they care about it. Uh, even things down like how do you play differently on a phone versus a tablet right so think about if you've got a 7 inch size tablet mm. versus a 10 inch size tablet you'd think they'd be the same type of gameplay wouldn't you but turns out people will play with a 7 inch tablet one handed I see but they'll have to put the 10 inch tablet down right yeah. those little things yeah. change the way that people engage with the game right yeah now there's not enough difference in terms of numbers of people buying those sizes to just uh, apply that but if you don't think about it you've just lost an audience okay so if you require somebody to have both hands touching a screen you might find the people on the phone don't want to play it yeah so you lose obviously lose that audience you lose that and there's so much so much like that that I just find the whole psychology of why people love in escaping into games I find fascinating mm. and you know that's fundamentally why I love Sitting there, you know, my, I'm very lucky. I get to think about this. Yes, <laughs> yeah. but that uh, that would help you to create something that is popular yeah. with a wide audience. Then would it? Well, be? you hope so. But okay, it's still not. It's like it's like um, <clears throat> there, there must be an unknown to it. So many unknowns. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you're still making something that 
has got to appeal to people, you know, at a cultural level, a social level. There's that kind of magic dust yeah. that you can't predict. It's like tweets. Yeah. Oh, tweets that go viral. No, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a tweet go viral. The closest I, my, my, the closest I got was getting Nathan Fillion to reply to something I'd made when I made a cheap joke out of Derek. But that's, that's the, I've no idea what makes a tweet go viral. Yeah. If somebody could tell me that for me, that'd be quite happy. (laughs) But I think in some ways games is a bit weirder than that. It's, um, it's like any media, any Mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, I imagine you have it in in, Zoom comedy, it's like, what makes a joke funny? You know, can you put that down in a bit of paper and say, oh yeah, there's mechanically, I can tell you, you know, that there's a, probably a punchline somewhere, there's going to be a build up, there's going to be a tension yeah. moment, and then there's going to be a, uh, probably an expectation of, of, of something dreadful, and then you you, you have some get out. I, I mean, you could say that. Mm. Doesn't mean that you write a funny joke. No, that's right. I mean, offer, uh, jokes can be always analysed mm. in hindsight as to why it worked. But before it goes out, you but do, you, you do you know, sometimes know what should be work. What should work, but it you know your idea of should is not necessarily yeah. reality. And then you stand up on stage and you, you tell it, and if it if it works that night, yeah, great. If, if it doesn't, do you kill it straight away, or do you try it again? Uh, me personally, yeah. I'd, I'll try it a couple of times. Yeah. Um, I don't have a set number though. It's just because you could get <coughs> there's so many factors in the room as to why something may or may not work. Exactly. So sometimes you don't get a fair chance to try it and, and, until I've given it a fair chance. And I think that's really what we try to do with games as well. Mm. And the really big thing that's happened in the last 10 years, everyone's going to tell you it's the App Store, and, and, it, and it is too, but mm. I think the more fundamental thing is data. Okay. In- so we actually have a lot more information about what people do when they play. Right. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not being sort of scary. But it's, you know, yeah. we, it's just we an, we make it an, anonymous. We're just interested in why does the game work? Okay. And it's because when we see what people do when they start playing a game, yeah, we can actually have these gates. We say, well, where were the decisions made in play? Okay. And so what happens is you'll always see from each decision point, one to the next to the next to the next, there'll be a slight drop off. But if there's a big drop off. There might be a problem. Drop of an interest, as in the number yeah. of people doing those things. Okay. So yeah. people, you know, people leave the game. <coughs> it's an inevitable thing. Yes. So a bit like you judging the room, if the joke works or not. We're judging play mm. based on having enough people going through playing that game and saying, "Yeah, that worked. That didn't work. That did work. That didn't work." Yeah. And where we find where it doesn't work, we find out. We try things. We experiment. We can get so clever now, we can do A-B tests. So that means we'll have two versions of the game. Version A, version B. We might give 5% of people version B. Yeah. And we see who stays longer over that critical point where we've made a single change. Mm. So because we can do those little tests, we can actually get to the heart of what might be working or not. Right. Trouble is, you can't make sure it will work. It doesn't replace the kind of creative process. Yeah. But it gives the creative designer a chance of identifying where there might be a problem and giving them an opportunity to change it. Okay. So it's fact, I mean, you know, it's a quite analytical process nowadays, um, but it doesn't stop it being just as creative as any period in history. Yeah, I, I mean, I never thought about A-B testing in games because normally, because I software test during mm. the day, 
A-B testing is, you know, having an app, yeah. send out one version to a bunch of people, another version, but obviously with games it applies too, yeah. In some ways, I think we lead the way on that because we can do things like heat maps. So you imagine you've got a game map. Um, I can see where you where people went. Okay. You can see where people don't go as well. So you can actually have the XYZ coordinates of every player through the game level. Right, right, yes. And you see where they move. And, and why are they going there then? Why are they going there? What are they doing? Yeah. And it, uh, one of my favourite example of that was a game, a uh, Unity game that the Unity testing guys, um, so there's an analytics team. I used to work for Unity uh, as an evangelist. Okay. And I, I know the analytics team quite well. They did this great job with a dragon based game. I can't remember the name of the game now. And there was this fantastic thing where they had the objective at the end of the level was over here somewhere. And all they saw were people stopping at this gateway and going back. And no one ever went to the objective. Right. And it's because they didn't, they were facing the wrong way when they spawned. They ah. didn't see it. Now, I, I, maybe I'm mixing it because there's several different experiences. We had that very experience in PlayStation Home, so it's a while ago since I did this. But it's <laughs> like, even stupid things like that, where you're just facing the wrong way, when you arrive, you don't think to look. You don't. No yeah. one thinks to turn around. Yeah. So why would they find the objective? And it's it's often really human things like that you find out. Um, and I think that's what, what's so fascinating. But it's so tempting to just assume that the data's everything. Oh, the data says it's not working. Therefore, kill the game. Well, mm. is that what the data's saying, or is it the fact that? You know, you've forgotten to do a step at this stage to explain what's needed to solve the later level. Yeah, which is like a joke. Have you yeah. forgotten to explain part of it so they understand the Precisely, other? Precisely, yeah. Because yeah. if you don't do the setup, they're not going to feel the tension and then the punchline's going to have no effect. Or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors, I know. But, yeah, nice. But it's any creative process, filmmaking, story writing, you know, they're all, they all have these wishy-washy, you know, ambiguous elements, these amorphous blobs that we're trying to juggle, like juggling <laughs> jelly, yeah. that we can't really put our finger on and say, yeah, that's the funny bit. But what we can in games do is say, look what people did, and then hopefully we can find where the missing parts are, or the broken parts are, and fix them. Mm. And, you know, it becomes really important when you do this service-based game, because... If you are going to offer a game, particularly free to play, I'm not getting any money unless you decide to keep playing at all. So all the effort I'm putting in to make this amazing game is wasted unless you keep playing. Yeah. So that means I actually have to care enough to make sure the game is great at the beginning, mm -hmm. foreshadows what's coming, and makes you want feel makes you feel like you're missing out if you don't keep playing. Yes. So that's you. In theory, you should be able to, should be required to make better games if they're free to play. Because if you pay up front, I've already got your money. Why should I really care about making sure that the journey through the game is as smooth and as ideal as possible? Right. Because, you know, obviously you have to make a good enough game, even in premium, um, because you get bad reviews, you don't want bad reviews. No. But actually, if I'm already paid, I'm already invested in finishing the game. I'm not going to waste my money. I want to get my money's worth. So I push myself through all the bad bits in the game. And I mm -hmm. bet you found games that you kind of liked, but <clears throat> the early stage were a bit frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get past a lot of the early stage of Metal Gear 5. Yeah. 
because there's, there's so much. There's a lot, yeah. I happen to like Metal Gear 5, yeah. as it happens, whereas I didn't play any of the other one, the earlier one. So oh, right, like, I was yeah. a massive fan of the yeah. first two, yeah. when, you know, 20 years ago, whatever. But I was a PC player back then, rather than a console player. Okay. So I, ne- I kind of missed out on <coughs> some of those. Like, I'm one of the few designers I know that doesn't really like Mario. Oh, right, okay. I said, I said, no, I don't like yeah. Mario. I think I yeah. just find it all childish. It's for me. I just think it's sideways jumping. I, uh, I admire the jumping. It's very clever. I admire the level design. As a purist in design, there is an absolute mm. beauty to it. Okay. But it bores me. Yeah, I find it, yeah, it's very yeah. boring. And I think you maybe outgrow that stuff. Is it a grow or, or is your dexterity like mine a bit shit? Because you've got to be perfect. To no, play it's, those it's games. good. I can play them. Oh, yeah. I just. Don't you know? Because it's the same thing. Same thing, exactly. Sideways scrolling. So I, I'm a judge on several awards. So oh. I work for. Um, uh, do, I do some work for Steel Media, do Pocket Gamer. They okay. have this thing called the Big Indie Pitch. Uh, I also do stuff on the Indie Prize, which is part of the Casual Connect Group. So I do a lot of game judging. Yeah. So I see about a thousand new games a year coming through, brand new games being tested, and I would say twenty percent of them are the same pixel based sideways scrolling game and every time I see it in my heart it all just dies a little right but I go through it because every once in a while one of those will do something really magic okay so there's one game I can't remember the title of it instead of the usual you know left right jump buttons it had a, a slider which said how fast you'd move right and it was a bit like I don't know mixer you know on a on a DJ, uh, you know, turn table type thing. So imagine doing that sort of um, wiggling mo- motion to get your character to move forward and then deciding when they're going to jump. And somehow that was like playing them for the first time. It really reminded me of the very kind of original joy okay. when you first played those games. Yeah. Because someone had bothered to take the spirit I see. of that concept. Yeah. And bring it to life. I'm wondering if, because uh, I haven't played it, if the new Zelda on the Switch is like that. It's it's actually beautiful. Yeah, that's what I'm Genuinely hoping because beautiful. I, I the, strong memories are. You remember the Mario? I don't play them now, but the yeah. one on the Super Nintendo when it first went 3D. I didn't play that, uh, era, but I'm aware of it. Then they had the the N64 and the um, uh, Mario Sunshine, all this other stuff. It was Sunshine yeah. on 64, I can never remember what that uh, was. No, I think that's on the one after. It's on the one after. Dream, yeah. uh, I can't remember which one it was. But I remember seeing some of the 3D ones. Now, again, never really got into the Mario mm. scene, so yeah, I didn't ever have the snares. Um, I had a... Um, uh, uh, what was it called? Sega Mega Drive. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, I was more of a Sonic player than I was... Yeah. Mostly because I, for some stupid reason, when I was a kid, I used to blame Nintendo for the death of Atari. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I know, I've always known it was not rational. Yeah. But I went from basic my Atari 2600 to a PC almost. I see. Stop. Um, the Atari with the little thin joystick. Yeah. And the one, one red right button. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I loved it. I loved that. <laughs> it was great. Uh, a friend of mine had one when I was a kid uh, and I loved it. I just, it was, I, and I did have an adventure. I he's got become famous now with the half ready player one. Oh uh, yes. So I'm wearing a t-shirt. Happens to be ready player one. It's a. Blue I didn't like the film. I was. 
I feel similarly to the book that there was lots of lots of moments which were interesting, but it felt like somebody who wanted to try too hard to be nostalgic and in the end wanted to make some moral yeah uh, thing that wasn't really a gamer thing. But it felt like it was a gamer thing, not written by somebody who wasn't a gamer. I mean, it's right. not fair. Probably, it probably is. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, that whole cultural kind of joy that we first had the ability to play a game on a piece on a TV, mm. um, and then when I first got you know the Doom and and, and Wolfenstein, in fact, I still remember that game. The uh, three, what was it? The little the floppy um, drive. It was um, uh, through quarter inch or whatever it was um, floppy drive that I had shareware um, version of Wolfenstein for my PC okay. and um, that was the first time when I was genuinely scared from a computer game because okay. of course I played it in the dark Yeah. and these crappy little squares <laughs> that we were, yeah. but for the time oh my god yes. I was in the real world Yeah. I still to this day love the um, battle zone and in particular, there's um, so um, there's a um, arcade machine museum in San Francisco. So when I go for GDC and various other events in San Francisco, uh, I go to this place because they've got the original Star Wars arcade machine. Oh wow! The so vector, graphics, the vector graphics, graphics. Yeah, I love that game. Yeah, it was great. I was never any good at it. I just loved it. <laughs> it was, was hard. It was a hard game. It was hard. Well, when I got through, you know. The sort of mid-level stuff, and it started going with and the that. stars coming out. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it's, and it's amazing how quickly you get back into the frame of mind where you see X-wings rather than vector graphics. Yes. And it's amazing how quickly the brain compensates. Mm. But once we're used to good graphics, we can't go back. It's hard, mate. Yeah. So hard. And you know, think about some of the stuff. So, like, again, you know going back to the sort of Unity stuff I was doing, I left in March. Um, when you see someone, uh, like the guy, the director for um, District 9, um, whose name escapes me at the moment, has been doing this thing called Adam. Adam is basically a short a series of short films made in a game engine. Okay. And you think about what that means. <coughs> We're now at the stage where you can have 4K quality video textures inside a game now that might sound like gobbledygook to some people but what that means is I look around and I see real world things they can be pre-loaded so you can have all sorts of special effects already built into them creating worlds that feel huge mm. and then when an event happens you play back the video from that point automatically so imagine I'm in a I don't know I could, you can literally do uh, D-Day and have you know Banner Brothers style footage creating the scene around you and all the game has to do is render the bit that you're interacting with and you see the whole of the experience going on around you mm. and as you look around it just plays that part of the video and that's the that's the, for me that's the amazing stage we're at mm. the potential to unleash anything as simple as a a candy crush all the way up to a fully immersive video experience that's mm. almost beyond the uncanny valley we're almost a stage where you wouldn't know that was a a, a person yeah. so, or a or a or a character yeah you know look at ready player one all the 
in-game footage was done in, in as I think, as I understand it, was done in, in Unity. Okay. So it was done in the game engine. Right, right, right. And so you think about all those characters running around inside that film were being produced using gaming technology. Mm. So I think that's why I find fascinating is we're, we're actually at a stage where the boundaries of what we can do creatively, visually, are un- unlocked. Mm. The real challenge is can we put the gameplay back into that? I see. Yeah, because uh, lot of these games they have amazing graphics, mm. but they just... I don't know, you don't feel like you're playing it, really. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's why I think Fortnite, and, you know, PUBG to a certain extent, you know, why they have become really powerful, because they are actually really good games <coughs> at their heart. And they've unshackled some of the sort of design bullshit, as I like to call it. Um, it's terrible, I shouldn't say these things, but one of the things I hate when I play a big game is the first five minutes is normally a series of pressing X for ten minutes. I'm exaggerating, but not that much. Watch yeah. Dogs was four and a half minutes okay. of pressing it because I timed it. Like, what game? Watch Dogs. Oh, Watch Dogs. Lo- Love the game, but it spent for the first one, yeah, four and a half minutes pressing X. Yeah. Awesome. That's right. And it's like, what? I don't want to press X. I want to play the game. And mm. um, I don't even get started on Final Fantasy 15. It's like, no. <laughs> I, I got to go after 11, I think. Oh, yeah. Just. No, um, and I, I think part of my problem with Final Fantasy is that whilst I respect it, and obviously you know seven and nine are, are obviously critically yeah you know, amazingly impactful. Seven is the one for me, but yeah, that's when everyone cries out. So yeah, you know, talked about crying earlier. <laughs> I publicly admit to crying in seven. <laughs> um, but you think about that, you know that actually emotions in games really mm. something we have yet to fully explore properly and there are these moments occasionally but it's starting to become really you know important I mean I don't know if you've heard of that dragon cancer no. so it's definitely worth checking out but this is a I, I own it but have never played it okay but I know I should and it's uh, basically about a game designer and his wife and their baby and the baby has cancer it's just real life. Okay. In order to deal with their grief, they built, built this game around the experience. Right. So it's a utterly honest, truthful, amazing piece of work. It looks amazing. Mm. And it's obviously a true story. And it's about the experience that they felt. And that's the, the greatest kind of experience of, art you could hope for. You why, know. why haven't you played it then? Uh, to be I just find it too emotionally charged. Oh, I see, okay. Um, I want to play it. Yeah. But every time I go to play it, I just don't, I don't know if I was... It's too heavy. Yeah, I don't even deal with it. Um, but we are definitely seeing people starting to really understand that games are a different type of medium than film or TV. Uh, the way I like to talk about it is in a, in a book or a film, the idea is to show, not tell. But in games, the idea is to do, mm. not show. So that's why I hate the X, pressing X all the time. Right. Because if I'm going to play a game, I want to do. And this really kind of interesting, kind of goes back to the sort of 1950s, or no, 50, anyway, the, some of the earliest psychologists looking at games. A guy called um, Johan uh, Hedzinger, I think it's Johan, I can't remember. Uh, but Hedzinger talked about. Um, 
what a game is in various forms and although it's a bit of a longer description I like to paraphrase it as it's an experience which outside our normal routine you know and if you think about what that means it means it's we're separating ourselves from the pressure of life the you know, the, the, the the rules of re- the real world mm. and allowing us to um, express ourselves in, in this in this very limited medium with a set of constraint rules that we universally agree to play through uh, I think universally it's assuming it's multiplayer but it, it that has a certain amount of freedom to it it's oddly by providing yourself a constraint outside of our normal lives we end up with this level of freedom to be able to free our ways of thinking our hmm. who we are and that's quite empowering it, it oddly empowering and and helps build competence or a sense of a sense of competence because if you play a game and you feel good about it you'll feel com- confident about mm. that you can do that you are competent you have autonomy in what you're doing so that games are incredibly powerful medium because of that and that's why things like the ladder and cancer I think is a really, really powerful um, example of what we're trying what we hope games can be mm. we can be trivial absolutely we should there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with playing a bit of Candy Crush now and then, or um, what's, the, what's the other one? I mean, like Home. Anyway, there's, that, there's a, so many different games. Yeah. I lose track. I've probably played tens of thousands of games. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's only one person I know who's definitely played more than me, and she's younger than me, which is really annoying. My friend Jupy, who. Uh, oh, yeah, she's yeah, been on there. Yeah, yeah. And um, she plays all of the indie projects. She does, yeah. Um, I have no idea how she does it. <laughs> I mean, literally no idea. Right. So what um, what have you got coming up? What's coming up? So um, at the moment, it's, I've, I've got to get the Rocky Horror game out. Okay. Um, we've got the last build we've got coming. Uh, we were a successful Kickstarter a couple of years ago, but we're about a year late getting it out. Okay. Um, people what, are alright with that. Well, um, yeah, not not as alright as we'd like, but it's difficult. Yeah, you don't want to release something that's shit. No, we did actually get it out in June uh, last year, but okay. um, it didn't quite work, so we had to go back to the basics. Got a couple of guys who were involved with Guitar Hero to help us out. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine worked on it, he introduced me to two of the designers, and they gave me a fantastic teardown, and the other one gave me a great way of redesigning it. Um, so hopefully that'll go out uh, before October, because I'd like to get it out before Halloween. Um, We'll see how that goes and okay. yeah there's a whole bunch of other stuff I'm always always busy okay yeah that's good man well look thank you for talking to me today I mean this is have you condensed like 20 years into 40 minutes <laughs> yeah I'm sure it's to do that or no. take 20 years to talk about 40 minutes <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it's a nice way around you've done it today that's great cool. um, how, how can people get in contact with you so the best way to get hold of me is on Twitter okay. uh, I'm at Athanasius okay. because A-T- H A N A T E U S. I had a brother Athanasius as a teacher. Did you? Oh, at, really? At private school. Uh, Irish a, teacher. And a role playing character. Okay. Is a is a it's a, some biblical character. It's, it's linked to immortality. Right. And so I had this old um, DD character that was used that name because I thought it was cool. Okay. Um, but it's Greek. And, right. Um, I actually met an Athanasius who was really annoyed at me because I had <laughs> that name on all <laughs> social media. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool name. Yeah. 
Yeah, Brother of Nations. I'm glad you, you pronounce it the same way I did because a number of people have pronounced it differently. It's, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, although the Greek guy did as well, so okay. I, I'll take his, his word for it. <laughs> um, but I'll put, I'll put all these details in the, in the yeah, description. Yeah, no worries. Um, mate, thank you very much. Podcast handshake. Pleasure. Podcast handshake has to be done. Great. Thanks very much. That's good. Oscar Clark there, vet of uh, veteran of uh, video, not veterinarian surgeon. Anyway, you know what I mean. He's he's been around the block in video games. Uh, I'll have oh, you can get in contact with him um, on the the details that I put on the SoundCloud and the iTunes page. And if you want to come on the podcast, if you're a vet or if you're a a not a non-vet, if you're quite new or you know you've got some stuff going on in the video games industry then uh, drop me an email via my website fatcomedian.com and we'll have a little chat other than that uh, I think that's it and uh, check out gamedevheroes.co and see you on the next podcast <laughs>